This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Turns out we're trying just about anything to find love, including psychics. Have you got any friends that have done this, obsessed with speaking to psychics about their love life? Starts off as a bit of a laugh, maybe, but then... It gets into different territory. People are relying solely on this advice that they're getting from fortune tellers. We're getting into this a bit later, talking psychic love predictions. If you swear by this stuff, you're going to want to listen. If you are so confused as to why people are obsessed with this, you're going to want to listen. Also coming up, we explain a big court ruling that basically means Australia can't detain people indefinitely in immigration detention anymore. Firstly... Gaza. Hack. The UN human rights chief says both Israel and Hamas have committed war crimes on Triple J. Earlier this week, we spoke to a UN official who made it clear that what they were seeing in Gaza could amount to war crimes. That's what they told us. But over the past day, the United Nations has made their view even more clear. The UN's human rights commissioner accused both Israel and Hamas of war crimes. Health officials in Gaza say more than 10,000 Palestinian people have been killed so far. The Israeli military says 50,000 Palestinians have fled Gaza City over the past day alone. In a bit, we're going to be checking in to see how doctors are dealing with this situation. But first, here's Joe Lauder with a bit of an update. Since the 7th of October, we face extermination, killing, bombing falling over our heads. This video is of a group of Palestinian kids and they're all standing around a collection of microphones and they're giving their own press conference about the war that is going on around them. The occupation is starving us. We don't find water, food and and we drink from the unusable water. In the last month in Gaza, over 10,500 Palestinian people have been killed and more than 4,000 of them are children. It's led to top United Nations officials coming out with their strongest criticism of the situation in Gaza so far, saying both Hamas and Israel have committed war crimes. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, says the number of casualties is unacceptable. There are violations by Hamas when they have human uh, shields. But uh, when one looks at the number of civilians that were killed with the military operations, there is something that is clearly wrong. Humanitarian ceasefire, now. This is the head of one of the UN health agencies. What we've seen over the last month is more than a humanitarian crisis. It's a catastrophe. The World Health Organization has warned about the risk of diseases spreading in the Gaza Strip because of the crippled health system there and because Israeli airstrikes have affected access to clean water. There is no clean food. There is no clean water to drink. All what we have is the water, salty water from the sea. Hamas has lost control and is continuing to lose control in the north. Israel's ground invasion in the north of Gaza is getting closer to Gaza City and there's been intense fighting between the army and Hamas. We are battling Hamas. There is no ceasefire. 
At the same time, about 240 Israeli hostages who were taken during the October 7 attack by Hamas are still being held hostage in Gaza. There have been reports today of negotiations to release some of the hostages in exchange for a three-day ceasefire. But Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has dismissed this as false rumours. The families are still pleading for the hostages to be brought home safely. This has been a nightmare for us, okay? We are a very strong family and very united, but uh, uh, this is something beyond every nightmare that we could imagine. Uh, the, the, The thing is that we don't know. We don't know nothing. There are still major questions about what Israel's long-term goal is here beyond crushing Hamas. The US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has come out and said what they think should happen. No forcible displacement of Palestinians uh, from Gaza. Not now, not after the war. No use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism or other violent attacks. No reoccupation of Gaza after the conflict ends. No attempt to blockade or besiege Gaza. No reduction in the territory of Gaza. Back home, the pro-Palestine protests on the weekend were some of the biggest anti-war protests that Australia's seen since the Iraq war. And federal Greens politicians walked out of the Senate this week to protest the Australian government's position on the war. You are watching the massacre of thousands of Palestinians by Israel and you are not condemning Israel. You refuse to call for an immediate ceasefire. Well, we are not going to sit here and watch you pat yourselves on the back for doing nothing. Weasel words are not going to stop war crimes. Today, we bring the people's protest into parliament. Free, free Palestine. Thank you, Senator Fariki. Hack, Triple J. Joe Lauder with that update. Well, let's check in with the humanitarian situation in Gaza now. Jennifer Tierney is Executive Director of MSF Australia, which is Medicine Sans Frontieres, Doctors Without Borders. She's with us now. Jennifer, thank you very much for making the time to come on Hack. What are you hearing from doctors in Gaza right now? So we have 300 staff on the ground in Gaza and they are going through a massively complicated and challenging time. What we're seeing right now is there are about 3,500 beds available in the hospital system in Gaza and they are completely overwhelmed. Uh, The beds are full. Surgery is being done, you know, on the ground. There's really no space for patients at this stage. We're seeing surgeons who are having to take on surgeries with no to little anesthetics. And so, for instance, one of our doctors has, Dr. Obeid, has come back to us and gave us some documentation around an amputation that he had to do on a child under light sedation, which was really an incredibly challenging moment for him and for anyone to see. What is Doctors Without Borders calling for? Is there a call for a ceasefire? Is that what medical staff on the ground say is needed? Absolutely. So we are definitely calling for a ceasefire. And that will, you know, mean that citizens, people on both sides of this conflict are able to actually access medical care without being fired upon. And that's really what the reality is on the ground right now. I mean, you have bombs raining down on hospitals and ambulances, and it's uh, a, a terrible situation. And some are saying, you know, have a pause, but for us, it's simply not enough. Uh, we need to be able to rebuild the facilities that have already been damaged, so terribly damaged in this conflict, if we're going to have any chance at all 
of being able to provide the level of care and the volume of care that's needed at this point. And just to be clear, because we are hearing some people talk about a humanitarian pause, other people saying ceasefire, they are separate things. They are separate things. I mean, the distinction is a ceasefire is a, is a real stop. And the pause means that you go back to fighting afterwards. And we just don't think that this group of people in Gaza can sustain anymore. I mean, we're seeing thousands and thousands of people dead already. You know, one of the things that's happening is people are sustaining injuries and then they're not able to stay in the hospital. They're going out into very unsanitary conditions. And what that means is that they're getting infected. And so you have these long-term challenges with children with really serious burns, now getting infected wounds that need to be addressed. And unless we have some actual time and space, like real time and space to be able to deal with that, they're not going to be able to be treated. Are there any doctors that are able to get into Gaza at all? Or is it just the doctors who are already stationed there that are able to to work? So right now, it's just the locally hired team members from MSF who are able to work. But we have a team of surgeons and anesthetists on the border. We're in the process of trying to negotiate their entry. And do we know specifically whether medical supplies are getting in? We're hearing about aid trucks uh, coming into Gaza. Do we know what the situation is specifically with the supplies you need to operate on people? Yes, some are getting in. So for instance, MSF sent 800 surgical kits through the World Health Organization into Gaza. So so that is there. But to put things into perspective, Gaza typically sees a few hundred trucks coming across the border with supplies, water, food, medical supplies, whatever it may be, each day. And we're seeing a trickle compared to that. And of course, the situation is that people need that aid more than ever. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Jennifer Tierney, who's the Executive Director of Doctors Without Borders Australia, about the situation in Gaza. What uh, we're hearing from the doctors who are working in incredibly difficult conditions on the ground in Gaza. Jennifer, can you explain how Doctors Without Borders works? There are probably people listening now who, who don't understand how does your operation function around the world? So we work in 70 plus countries around the world. We have 65,000 staff, doctors, nurses, human resources professionals. 90% of them are hired at the local level. So you'll have doctors and nurses working in Gaza, South Sudan, Sudan, Yemen, Afghanistan. And then about 10% of them come from Australia, New Zealand, and other countries of the like. And so Um, We do have staff working in Yemen, Afghanistan, Gaza from Australia and New Zealand right now. And just to be clear, you're not political, the organisation? We are not political. No, we remain neutral. And so in this instance, for instance, we've been working in Gaza for some time because the medical situation in Gaza is really um, quite dire. The, you know, the health system wasn't strong before this crisis started. We have offered support to Israel as well, and we will continue to because if they need our support, that's what we do as a humanitarian organization is work on both sides. Has what's happening in Gaza impacted other work that you're doing around the world? I think that this crisis has taken a huge amount of the focus of the organization. I mean, what we're seeing and just the crossing of boundaries of humanitarian norms and humanitarian laws, it's shocking to us. And we we really won't turn away until we see a little bit of relief 
for people living in Gaza. And also, I just want to say, we want to say, see relief for the Israelis right now who are dealing with uh, this terrible crisis and, and obviously are feeling the, the aftermath of um, what happened on October 7th, which was absolutely horrific. So we are, however, you know, focusing um, in Afghanistan, for instance, where there were three earthquakes since October 7th, which have affected the population in Herat. You know, we're seeing malnutrition crises in the Sahel that we're dealing with, and we're still treating people for tuberculosis and um, all sorts of other diseases all around the world. We have heard from UN officials who've accused both Israel and Hamas of war crimes. Do you think governments around the world are doing enough to kind of call this out? We think that they need to call for a ceasefire. I mean, we're not going to get involved in the definition of whether or not something um, is a war crime right now. I mean, we're really busy just trying to make the space to actually provide medical support to people. We do think that there has not been enough done to call for a ceasefire. And so we are calling for that very strongly around the world, including asking the Australian government to do that. We appreciate the update. Jennifer Tierney, Executive Director of Medicine Sans Frontières Australia, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Hack on Triple J. The messages coming through, obviously people really distressed about the situation, someone saying the Australian government needs to do more. We'll make sure we keep you across the developments, of course, as they happen. Hack. This is such an important decision. It's big for refugees. On Triple J. For 20 years, there have been people in Australian immigration detention centres facing the prospect of being there for the rest of their lives. And that was legal until yesterday. Australia's highest court found this week that indefinite immigration detention is unlawful and unconstitutional. It's a big decision because it means asylum seekers in those countries could be freed immediately. If you're a bit confused about the history, how this all works, Ellie Grounds explains. This is a landmark decision. The decision is of profound consequence. Yesterday, something huge happened in the world of Australian immigration law. For nearly two decades, the Australian government has been detaining people indefinitely in immigration detention centres, and it's been lawful. But now, the High Court of Australia has ruled it's not. The indefinite detention of refugees, people seeking asylum, or migrants in Australia is unlawful. It's a really big deal. The decision paves the way for the possible release of almost 100 asylum seekers in indefinite detention. We'll get into what it means for people currently in detention in a bit. But first, to properly understand this story, we have to go back to 2004. Back then, the High Court ruled the indefinite detention of a person without a valid Australian visa was lawful, so long as they were removed from Australia as soon as reasonably practicable. But for some people in detention, including asylum seekers and refugees, it would never be practicable because they can't return to their home country and no third country will resettle them. But the court's ruling meant that even then, even when it would be impossible to deport these people, their indefinite detention would be lawful. Sanmati Verma, the acting legal director at the Human Rights Law Centre, says that's resulted in the time people have spent in immigration detention going up significantly. In 2013, the average time that people spent in immigration detention was 81 days. Today, if you look at the latest statistics, it's over 700 days. That brings us to court yesterday, where a Rohingya man from Myanmar in immigration detention was claiming his detention was unauthorised. 
And one of the central questions that the court had to answer was... Can the Australian government indefinitely detain people that it has no reasonably prospects of ever being able to remove? The man had been in immigration detention after serving time in jail for child sex offences. His lawyers said no other country could be found to take him due to his criminal convictions. He was facing spending the rest of his life in detention because no country was prepared to resettle him. The government argued that his ongoing detention was legal because they did intend to remove him despite the fact that they were unable to. The court didn't buy that argument. It said because there was no real prospect of his removal from Australia becoming practicable in the reasonably foreseeable future, his detention was unlawful and unconstitutional. The court ordered the man be released immediately. And according to Labor MP Andrew Lee, he was. As I understand, the individual in question has now been released in accordance with the court's ruling. Uh, the, gov- the ruling has just come down, so the government is uh, studying it and will respond on its implications in, uh, in the coming days. Today, some people have asked the question, if this man had his visa cancelled because of child sex offences, why should he be released into the Australian community? Josephine Langbean from the Human Rights Law Centre says he served his time. In Australia, we have a criminal legal system which is responsible for punishment and and delivering sentences. And we have an immigration detention uh, regime and that is something that is and must be entirely separate. Detention isn't allowed to be punitive. The Australian government does not have and has never had the right to use immigration detention as a way to punish people or to extend people's prison sentences. So what does this mean for other people currently in immigration detention? Those people now must be released. Um, They must be allowed to return to the community, return to their families, their friends and their lives um, until uh, or if it becomes ever possible for the government to carry out the deportation. The government has estimated there are 92 people in a similar situation to the Rohingya man who will need to be immediately released. But some human rights and refugee experts reckon that's a conservative figure. There's also 340 people in long-term detention whose future is now in doubt. The government reckons this court decision could lead to undefendable compensation claims from those who've been detained. But Sanmati Verma from the Human Rights Law Centre says, right now, her clients are just concerned with getting out. People who are in immigration detention are critically concerned with securing their liberty, um, not with, you know, matters such as compensation or looking to the past, um, they're looking to the future. So questions like that will follow after we work out how many people are liable for release. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds with that update. And yeah, we'll keep you across it because I imagine there's going to be so much more political reaction to that story. We are going to switch it up now, though. Talk about something a little lighter. Hack. Are you currently single? This is what your love life is going to look like within the next six months, okay? On Triple J. Are you seeing anyone? Are you looking for love? Where are you looking? Are you off the apps, maybe? You're trying other things, speed dating, getting your friends to set you up with mates. Maybe you've been hitting up your local psychic. A lot of people are choosing the psychic, honestly. It might sound really weird if you're not into it, but people are talking to fortune tellers to find out when, who they're going to meet, and they're taking the advice really seriously. If you have tried this, or maybe you have a friend that's tried this, I'd love to hear from you. Like, why did you turn to a psychic? 
Do you feel confident with their predictions? Does it make you feel better or worse? Message in 0439 757 Our Tassie reporter, April McLennan, actually got a bit of personal experience with this one and she's been talking to others who are into it too. I'm a hopeless romantic who's unfortunately been pretty unlucky in the love department. I've been on so many first dates trying to meet the one, but it just wasn't happening. So when my mum went to a psychic in Northwest Tassie last year, I was pretty excited to hear that she predicted I would end up with my future partner in 2024 and that I already know him. Then a few months later, I went on a holiday in India and met with a palm reader. And this is what is there in your horoscope because Mars, from his position, looking at the house which belongs to marriage relationship. So in that condition, girl does face difficulty in the love life. Yup, so pretty bang on. But then he went on to predict the exact same thing as my mum's psychic. April, May, 2024 is the year. And he also said that I already know the person I end up with, like they wouldn't be some random from a dating app. Turns out I'm not the only one seeking love advice from the beyond. It is just a kind of nice feeling to think, oh, okay, the universe has my back in some way, I guess. Single for the first time in eight years, second guessing her job and life direction, Jen was having a bit of a quarter life crisis. So she went to a psychic to ask for some spiritual guidance. And the psychic predicted that someone special would come into her life and his name would be Christopher. Recently, like I was at a party and I met someone and they just said, oh, hey, my name's Christopher. And I was like, oh my God, I just had this like, I don't know, it just hit me that this had been in a psychic thing and I was attracted to him and I was like, oh wait, this might be something I should pay attention to. And yeah, now now I am kind of like subconsciously like seeking that name, I guess. Jen says she's super open to dating people who aren't called Christopher, but... I can't like help fighting the feeling that if I do start dating someone like with a different name, that there might be this thought in the back of my head like, oh no, but I'm still meant to meet my Christopher, you know? A big reason people seek spiritual advice is to get answers. Practicing witch, tarot reader and freelance writer Jordan Fasina says she's had everything from what's this new relationship going to be like to some pretty intense questions about trauma. Just like we get guidance from therapy, from a friend, this is just guidance from like your angel buddies and whoever's on your team basically telling you like, you know what, you're not going on the right path right now, probably should do this, but I'll leave that up to you. It really is like sitting down to have coffee with your best friend. Psychic predictions have actually had a huge impact on my life. I've stopped dating and I've deleted all the apps. But Jordan warns we should be a little bit wary of altering our behaviour because of a prediction. My philosophy and ethos when it comes to spirituality is that it's a tool. You're supposed to work with it. You're not supposed to become obsessed with it or let it consume you. That can be very dangerous because we all have free will at the end of the day. And whilst there are some things that are predetermined and are likely to happen, at the end of the day, it's you governing your life and you're working with these forces. They're not supposed to take control of you, nor would they. Yeah, and on that, do you think if you make a certain prediction or give someone certain advice, like that can change in the future based on decisions they make in their life? 100%. I am... I will preach to the cows come home that everyone has free will. For me, when I do a tarot reading, I like to make sure, because so many people come in with the idea that tarot is this set in stone, it's never going to change, it's an inevitable kind of thing. But I always stress that when I do a reading with tarot, that I'm reading for the energies right now. 
For Jen, she says she took some advice from a psychic a bit too literal, and it ended up having a pretty huge impact on her life. She like alluded to this person that I had feelings for, that had expressed feelings to me, and it kind of encouraged me to latch on a bit more than maybe I would have otherwise. And then the relationship turned out to be a bad one, like it was an abusive relationship. While Jen still thinks about her psychic predictions a lot and is wondering if she'll meet her Christopher one day, her advice to other people seeking spiritual guidance is not to rely on it too heavily. In my experience, like friends of mine, family members have, you know, sought out psychic when they're in a time of crisis and that's fine, but um, you should always take it with a grain of salt. It's something that can be dangerous, I suppose, if you're relying on it too heavily. Also, you might just sit back and wait for something to happen because it's been predicted that it'll happen and that is obviously not a good way to live life. For me, I'm still hopeful that my psychic prediction will come true. Ma'am, I want to tell you one thing. Your marriage partner will be one wonderful person. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that story. And so many people on the text line. Someone says, my friend's recently seen a psychic because she's having difficulties deciding if she's going to marry her current fiancé. She's doing it because she's so confused and she needs some guidance to make this life-changing decision. Another person, Hannah from Brisbane, says, I've gone to a psychic a few times for love advice. It's always been on point and I've taken it really seriously. I've left long relationships. Everything for me has come true. Nicola is saying, look, I've off the apps at the moment. I've been stood up twice this weekend. I'm on Struggle Street. I'll try anything. Nick in Perth is asking for my advice on relationships. Nick, I can't offer anything. That's the worst idea possible. But someone who might be able to give us a bit of advice is Sean Connaughton. He's a psychologist, a couples therapist. He's with me now. G'day, Sean. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. Why do you think so many people are attracted to psychics for love advice? I'm sure there's many reasons. Uh, the three that come to mind for me are you know, the ability to provide certainty to something that's that's inherently pretty uncertain in our in in you know, relationships. Who, what, and when we're going to meet someone. Uh, another reason could be helping us deal with the overwhelming prospect of finding someone amongst the many possible suitors. You know, psychics being able to provide insight into some of the qualities of the person to look out for. And the third reason, a prevalent but somewhat misguided notion of, of soulmates or the one, you know, this idea that there's there's one person that we're destined to be with, that might be a reason to seek out someone who can apparently tell us who that person is. Oh, yeah, I guess a lot of people are being tempted. We're seeing it on the text line right now. I mean, is it harmless, though, if it's not having a huge impact on your life? Or when when can it become a bit problematic? When's it okay? And what's that line, do you reckon? Uh, I mean, one of the, one of the core principles that, that governs you know, psychology and, and therefore my work is this, this idea of evidence-based practice. So, you know, I'm really conscious about using theories and techniques that that are that are validated and and seen to be to be reliable to work for for most people. So, even if psychic approaches give comfort, I find it really hard to recommend them because there isn't much of a scientific basis. Uh, that there's flaws in them. Um, now that being said, if it if it can help alleviate some of those uncomfortable emotions that that people deal with uncertainty for example I, I don't I wouldn't want to say don't use it completely but I think as as was mentioned in in the segment do take it with a grain of salt and and I really recommend supplementing it with 
um, some of the practices that are that are known to to be really reliable for these types of things. Yeah, I guess we're hearing from some people now who are saying, "Look, I had this really unhealthy obsession addiction with the apps. Maybe it helped me get off that and have a bit of a break, which seems like it could be a bit healthy." Um, do you find that people are going to pretty extreme lengths, Sean, to find the one, the person? Yeah, yeah, and and I think it, it it's it, it is misguided because it almost Im- it, it implies that that once we find that person that that all the work is done, and and it it almost acts it almost implies a shortcut. Uh, just as, as psychics do, it's it's almost a shortcut to the answer. Um, someone who can tell you which direction to go, and and the reality is with. With relationships, there are no shortcuts. There's a lot of work that goes into you know, understanding yourself and how you show up in a relationship, and and then finding someone, and then putting in the work in the inevitable ups and downs that come with being in a relationship. So I think we need to be really grounded in that reality. Just got thirty seconds left, Sean. But what would you say to people who really stress about not finding the love of their life? What would be your advice to them? Look, I think finding ways to to manage that, to support yourself uh, through support networks, through through therapy, through anything that helps, but really being realistic about what you're trying to achieve with each of those things. And then amongst that, getting clear around what's your vision for your life? What's your purpose for a relationship? How does, how does, how does that purpose fill into your vision? And, and what are the values or principles that really help you find the right type of person to build a life with or to settle down with? When you can get those things clear, uh, I think you're going to be much better able to find direction and certainty in something that can be quite ambiguous. Hey, good advice there. A lot of people on the text line who are asking for advice, I'm sure they've got something out of that. Psychologist Sean Connison, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you. Hack on Triple Jack. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.